Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very exciting today because we have doubled your money today. We have actually brought in two bodies to give you more content here at Industry Standard. Very exciting. I just want to say thank you guys so much for everything. You guys have been so supportive. I know sometimes it sounds phony or fake, and it's not. I I can't... uh, I, I'm actually speechless because I can't really understand or, or figure out why sometimes things go the way they do or the way you visualize them to go or the way you want them to go, but it has, and it's been so wonderful, and the guests have been incredible, and today will be no exception. This is going to be a very different lane that we're going in today because I'm meeting here with the Mant Brothers, whose lane, it could be said, in production and direction and in creating is normally in sports programming. If you could add up everything they've ever done, I would say that the majority of it has been in sports and the background of sports. And we don't get to do that that often, although we did interview Scott Ackerson, who was the executive producer of Fox NFL Sunday and was there for 17 years. And my favorite thing about what he said was day one, show one, number one. And every day that he was on the watch of 17 years, his shows were number one. But I also interviewed David Hill, who started in sports and created that thingamabob in the top of the screen with all the scores, which was very exciting. But you rarely get to be sitting across from people 
who have made their living and wear such fine, wonderful gap clothing uh, that they buy with the money they make from these incredible sports programs that they do. But when I look at the people normally, uh, something comes to me and I think of a story that I want to tell to start on the podcast. And today is no exception because there's something that they did that really, really, really inspired me. Uh, I know one of them is going to say, well, what did I do, Barry, to inspire them? What did I write a check? Was I there to be supportive? Did I call and say, hey, you're doing a great job, keep it up, whatever. But we'll get into that in a second because when you're a partnership and you're brothers, I can imagine you remember the days when you're growing up and you're beating the shit out of each other and you're calling each other names and you're annoying each other and you're grabbing each other and tackling each other and there's so many things in family that people carry on to business that makes them great. When I interviewed Neil Brennan, one of the things that stuck with me is that he said to me that he was the youngest of 10 children and when his dad was dying, he went to his dad and said, Dad, it always felt like you never loved us. And his dad said, you know what, Neil, you're right. I never did. And that drove him forward. And, and there's so many people. Norman Lear, his father, called him the laziest white kid he ever saw in his life. And that drove him to be great. And he ended up creating a character, Archie Bunker, out of the memory of his dad. But when you're together as family and you've gone through all the trials and tribulations and then you have to work together, I imagine that can be very difficult and but also very challenging, but also very rewarding. But what strikes me most is these guys I, I've known for many, many years because indirectly and directly because Jay Moore was a guest host for 14 years on the Jim Rome radio show, which they were not a part of, but they were a part of producing, I think, every single one of Jim Rome's shows from the very beginning, including Rome is Burning. And so much so that they actually created a studio down by Jim Rome's where he lived in Orange County to actually facilitate all the productions so they could oversee football players throwing tables over on him and saying, I am not a girl. But that's another story. And so what I wanted to say is these guys were ensconced in this, these productions. They were the most successful guys I knew doing these kind of productions. They figured out how to do them for a price do them first class the graphics were beautiful everything was always amazing in everything they did and you got the feeling that the budget wasn't exactly a network budget you got the feeling that because they were the new kids on the block even though they had worked and they'll tell you a lot about that on things such as the 2000 olympics they also were in a situation where when you're trying to prove yourself and show that you can do it on the big stage and not that the olympics is in the big stage but when you have your name on the show your title card is at the end of the show that's your baby and you're responsible for whatever gets spent the craft services the cameramen with whatever they give you and you hope to be able to make it work. And then when you have a talent like Jim Rome, who's a guy who's, Jim Rome is the kind of guy that, you know, a lot of you don't know when you watch television how people are behind the camera. You just naturally assume that everybody's a certain way unless you hear it in the news. So you don't know if somebody's nice, if they're the salt of the earth. Now, chances are, if you watch Betty White on television, you think, hey, well, Betty White's probably nice to be around and you're actually right about that 
But then there's other people who are tortured geniuses who are just brilliant in what they do. And I would say this if Jim Rome were sitting here today. I consider Jim Rome to be a, a genius in what he does. When you're talking about one man and one mic and there's no team around him and nothing around him and you got to do what you do and you got to do it 300 to 400, 500, 1,000 times and you got to do a radio show, it's, it's, there's something about somebody that's blessed or touched from another lifetime that can be able to do that. But in the process to be that great as an artist, a lot of times you're dealing with a lot of demons and the way you handle and work with people, you're not always the greatest social communicator and the greatest huggable and lovable guy out there in the world. And consequently, people know that behind the scenes and it's, it's very difficult producing shows when you're around somebody like that. Another example of that would be like Dennis Miller, brilliant guy, genius, incredible. Bill Maher, brilliant guy, genius, incredible. But everyone who worked with him would tell you that, you know, to work on something and to do it right and to make it the way it's supposed to be, these are perfectionists and they expect everybody who works with them not to be their friend. As Dennis Miller would say, I didn't hire you to be my friend. I hired you to be a great producer, a great writer, a great director. And that's what I have you here for. And so what always impressed me is they were so, so successful doing this. But then they had told me one time, I think it was Neil that told me that, look, we were doing something for the Travel Channel, this thing that we were working on about experiences out in the world of, of dating across the world and the country. And I've been, you said you've been in 100 countries throughout your life. I don't think I'll ever be in 100 anything in my life. So... What they did was they had done this thing for the Travel Channel. And again, you talk about budgets. We're talking about the Travel Channel has budgets that are like the size of just, I tell you what, if you want to know what the Travel Channel budget is for a show, reach into your pocket, open up your wallet, see what's there. And it's basically half of that. But they did it. They did a great job. They did great work, again, proving themselves. But then they did something that was incredible. And Neil, your brother, credits you with this, is that the concept was that they would take their own money, take a little bit of the footage they had from the Travel Channel, and go off and travel across the world and create a movie where Neil would be an actor, and he hadn't acted uh, in anything since he was you know, maybe 20 years old, and decided to, to shoot this, I don't know what you call it, like a documentary movie of some sort, but it wasn't a documentary. It was like a hybrid kind of thing. And I saw footage of it and I was blown away. And they were doing these things where I don't even think they were working with permits. I don't think they had permits. I don't think, I don't know what they were doing, but for a total of probably thirty, forty thousand $40,000 of their own money that they invested, they decided, hey, we're at the top of our game with Jim Rome. He's the number one sports guy in the world. We're known for sports. You know what? Fuck it. Let's take a risk. And let's put our own money in and let's go out here and make this work. And if we create our own thing and do it and get out there, we can make something happen. They didn't have a network like a Showtime or HBO or anybody committed to it, even a theater chain or a studio. They had nothing. They just had a dollar and a dream and an idea and that they wanted to do something different than had never been done before. And along the way, Neil would send me some footage clips here and there. And I was just blown away by it. And I honestly 
didn't know where the place would be for it. I didn't see it as a film in theaters, and I didn't really see it in a lot of networks. And premium cable, the only places I really saw that it could go, in my mind, were probably Showtime or HBO or Epics or, you know, one of those places. This was before Netflix came to prominence or Hulu or any of the places now. And so it was amazing to me that they were taking this risk, financial risk, and not only financial risk, but you got to look at your your hours of time as a cost. And they were going across the world doing these things, and they believed in it. They made it work. And then they sold it to Showtime as a movie called Last Stop for Paul. And it was so successful as a movie on the network which you would think, how could it be successful? Well, I'll tell you how you know when something's successful. You know when something's successful on a network, when the network says, you know what? We really like what you do. Let's follow that up with a series called Next Stop for Charlie and make a commitment towards that. Now, this is the next thing that you don't know, and to pull back the curtain about some little secrets about certain networks, Showtime is the kind of network that you think Wow, this is a premium network. They spend millions. Nurse Jackie, that must be a million five to two million an episode. This is incredible. That movie, that original movie I saw, unbelievable. But there's two different departments there. There's an acquisitions department, and then there's original programming department. The original program department has about 98% of the money. The acquisitions department has about 2% of the money. So every comedy special that you see on there for the year, I can guarantee you, maybe their budget for comedy specials for a year at best is a million dollars. And now you're saying, how is that possible, Barry? Sometimes they have 15 specials. They have 20 specials. That's because the network could spend as little as $50,000 for a special that somebody shot on their own. They might have spent $125,000 doing it, but Showtime's giving them $50,000. You want it on the air? Here's $50,000. Same with a lot of series that they do that are low-budget series. They might, at best spend $150,000 or $200,000 for 13 episodes or 10 episodes. or fit. And so they might only spend $15,000 an episode. But these guys that I'm sitting next to understood and realized that respect outlasts cash. And you're trying to make a name for yourself and you're trying to create a different lane for yourself and show people that you can do anything. So they took the risk. They did the special. They recouped their money. They did the uh, series. Again, I know them. I know them. They did not lose money, but they did not make money. But they did it so they could get their name out there, make it happen. And both things they did on Showtime were great work. So my message for today is this. If you have any semblance of any money that you can carve out and do anything for yourself, I don't care what it is, if it's a YouTube video that's a minute long or a short film that you have an idea that you've been writing, pull every favor you know and just start making great content and don't put anything out there unless it's extraordinary. I can guarantee you these guys, when they walk out of the house, are an A. Everything they do is an A. Their work is an A. They've never done anything less. And I say the same to you. Don't put anything out there that isn't great, but create your own product. 
spend what money you can, get it done. Don't take somebody else's check in the beginning if you don't have to. Use your own, make your own, and you will score on your own. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am now going to give the Mad Brothers a proper introduction if you haven't fallen asleep yet, because they deserve this. Neil and Michael Mant are six-time Emmy Award winners. Six times. How many people do you know in your life that are one-time anything? Six-time Emmy Award winners. I've never won an Emmy. I've only been nominated for one, and I lost horribly. They are partners in the L.A.-based production company Mad Brothers Productions. The company was formed in 2001 and has a wealth of experience delivering award-winning content to television, film, internet, and mobile audiences. In addition to creating content, the brothers own and operate a 7,000-square-foot post-production facility in the heart of Hollywood, California. Do you know what it costs per square foot in Hollywood to own or rent anything? Big, big money not 15,000 an episode. They have produced over 1,500 hours of television shows, including the development creation of the hit ESPN series Jim Roma's Burden, ABC's Frozen Christmas Parade, the Sci-Fi Channel series Destination Truth, The Shed for Food Network, The Car Show with Adam Carolla for Speed, Strangers in Danger for Fuel, My Crazy Life for eSports Jobs with the late Junior Seau for Versus and Next Stop for Charlie, which we talked about for Showtime. 
In 2014, the Mann Brothers were producers of the Walt Disney Pictures feature film Million Dollar Arm. And that was a movie that my sons loved so much, and they still have the shirts from the premiere. I love that movie. Feature film was developed by Neil and Michael and starred John Hamm and Alan Arkin in December. The brothers teamed up with Disney again to produce the Disney Parks Frozen Christmas Celebration for ABC Television. The telecast featured Trisha Yearwood, Train, and Ariana Grande, and was the highest-rated Christmas special since 2008. Neil and Michael are both veteran producers of the Olympics, including NBC's coverage of the 2000 Olympics in Sydney. Michael also produced the Olympic telecast in Salt Lake and Atlanta and holds numerous live sports credits, including the NBA Finals, NFL Pro Bowl, X Games, U.S. Open Tennis, Major League Baseball All-Star Game, the Major League Baseball World Series, and the X Games. Their companies also produced and filmed on location in over 30 different countries and on every continent except Antarctica. They are one of the few companies in production to have direct on-the-ground experience producing in China, having produced several mixed martial arts fights for live broadcasts on numerous Chinese television and satellite stations. They produced and directed a number of award-winning shorts as well, which have starred the likes of Bruce Willis, Samuel L. Jackson, Matthew Perry, Justin Timberlake, John Hamm, Seth Meyers, Jamie Foxx, and Will Ferrell. Hacks. The Mad Brothers started off this year on a big note by partnering up with Oprah Winfrey to produce the Black Women in Hollywood Awards show for the OWN Network, turning the power event into a stellar television special. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guests today, Neil and Michael Mant. Thank you very much, Barry. Yeah, very nice. And we're following Norman Lear. <laughs> It's <laughs> a tough one to follow. Yeah. yeah, he was just sitting here. It was uh, amazing with him. Uh, you know, the sad part is, combined all our ages, still younger than him. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we should be so lucky. Uh, but no, it was really, uh, you know, this podcast has been crazy because you just get to sit down with all different kinds of people. Like, I know you guys. I didn't know Norman. And I normally know everybody that I... I interview. So when a guy comes in, you don't know. He's 92. You don't know if he's going to be like after five minutes, he's going to be like, fuck it. You don't know if you're going to say something that's going to offend him. You know, I made a joke about his fishing hat. I thought he was going to walk out. You never know what's going to happen. But he was great and gracious. And he stayed here for like two hours and he talked with everybody and it was great. I interviewed Dion Warwick and the person told me, how long is this going to be? I said, well, normally it's around, you know, 90 minutes. And there was like this silence on the end of the phone. And I'm like, are you okay? It's like, listen, you'll be lucky if you get her for nine minutes. And she stayed for like 90 to two hours. It was amazing. So we have a great time. I want you to feel comfortable. We got you a little bit of water. We literally have brought in Fiji water from Fiji in like a large, like the container is the largest container in the free world. So what I like to do is go way, way back, if you don't mind, and since you're brothers, you're the first brothers I've ever introduced. And I don't know how you're going to do this or talk about this, but can you take me back to where you grew up, what the situation was socioeconomically and... What was the first inspiration to actually get in this crazy business? Hmm. 
Well, I started first. So how did I know Neil would talk first? I don't know what it well, is. For the business, no surprise. I, I think. Um, <laughs> I think I like Michael. Michael will probably set up the socioeconomic background pretty well. Why don't you talk about? He should with that watch. Jesus Christ! Well, a watch was a gift. Uh, Look at the watches so here. Neil actually got that nice gift. Mm. Um, no, we grew up in uh, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan, uh, which is a suburb north of Detroit. It's something that's straight out of a John Hughes film. You watch Breakfast Club, uh, Weird Science. It was just like that. Uh, you know, and just Very great. Real day off. Yeah. Pick, pick a neighborhood from that movie, and that's where we grew up. Yeah, a great area. And uh, our family is all from New York. Our parents were from New York City. Uh, Neil and my older sisters were born in New York, uh, and we were the only ones in the family that lived outside of, you know, across the Hudson. My father just happened to work in business where he moved around. He was an HR guy and he ended up with a position in Detroit, didn't think they would stay there. And after a few years realized, wow, this is, this is a great area. It's a nice place to raise kids. My dad was a big sports fan. You know, Hey, they got four major teams, Tigers, Pistons, Red Wings, Lions, check. That's all good. Uh, so it just turned out to be a great place. I think for them as parents, you know, we had good schools and as kids, uh, it was great. You didn't realize how shitty the winners were. That's all you knew. So that didn't phase you. Uh, just, it was, it was a really nice area to grow up. The time was, was, you know, we grew up in the seventies and eighties. So, um, I have no complaints. I, I grew up in a really nice place and had a, you know, no damaged here. No damage. No damage here with me. None no damage. None. Nothing. No. no, but no, absolutely no connection whatsoever to the entertainment business. None. Do you mind if I go back for one second? Because, sure. you know, I, I, I truly believe that every great artist, and you, I consider you guys artists. I don't consider you guys producers. I consider you guys creative artists. If you don't have a hand in creating something, I don't think you're ever going to be happy doing it. There's always something where somebody loses their innocence, and I'm not talking about their virginity. I'm talking about something always happens to drive somebody forward. I don't think it's possible to be a great artist unless something happens. Are you sure that nothing ever went down before your 18th birthday that just... Well, well. <laughs> I, I began in the business as a teenager. I mean, think Wayne's World, right? Now, Wayne's World, the movie, movie Wayne's World came out in 1991. Yeah. I don't know how powerful. This looks like a powerful mic. I'm telling you. It's, You're a powerful guy. Big, I didn't know I had to be so close. Why do you think we got the water that's your size? Um, so I had you know, learned about public access in the 80s. Wayne's World came out in 91. So in 86, 87, I started calling record companies and telling them I had a television show in Detroit. Detroit was a top 10 market at the time. The sound, I mean, it was nobody exploiting public access yet. So you just saw public access and you said, I can do this. Yes. I, you, what? You have to give me camera and editing equipment and give me my own TV show? That's what I'm going to do. And so I started calling record companies and I would get interviews very similar to what we're doing right now. Yeah, exactly what's going on. Now. Except I didn't have an office. Yeah. I would go get a backstage pass at the concert and then I would be interviewing Lenny Kravitz. And then I would record, I would tape the stuff and then edit it together and then put it out on a public access channel that nobody watched. But how did you get the Lenny Kravitz? I would call the record company and say, I have a TV show in Detroit. And they would say, oh, well, that's fantastic. And I'd say, okay, great. I need a pass. I'm going to be there. I was 16 years old. I was completely full of shit. 
nobody knew it. And so I would interview celebrities that came through town. And remember, nobody's exploited public access yet. Right, this is in a, in a place, a time when everyone is naive. I show up with very professional looking equipment and they were like, okay, you do the interviews. Well, I then entered that into the, the College Emmy Awards and my, after my sophomore year, I won the Midwest. And then I got a job at the NBC affiliate in Detroit as a reporter. Tell me the interviews that you submitted that got you the most notice. Um, God, what was on that? Um, trying to, it was a compilation. Of, I think it had Tone Loke, Billy Squire, um, maybe Information Society. Do you realize my pants just grew bell bottoms? <laughs> there were, I mean, it was a number of acts from the 80s. Okay, so you're doing that, and what's your brother doing? Well, he's in high school. Yeah. Still in high school. But you were in high school when you started public access. Right. So now I'm into college. Did you take over the public access No, show? I had no interest in television. Uh, you know, Neil always wanted to be in TV. Uh, we have a sister who's very successful, and she wanted to be in journalism. I had zero interest in doing anything like that. I wanted to be a professional baseball player. I played baseball in college. I went to Fordham, uh, which I like to remind people is the winningest Division One college program in baseball history. But I hurt my shoulder my freshman year, and so whatever minute chances I had of becoming a professional pitcher went down the window. They were gone and uh, down the drain. And I explained to people that Division One baseball is far and away the hardest sport to play in college from a time standpoint. People don't realize that you have a full fall season, so you're there in August, you're there past May, and there's no clock on a baseball game. Basketball games are done from warm-ups to the end of the game within three hours maximum. Baseball games can go on forever. And every Saturday and Sunday, you're playing a doubleheader. And you, your days are just jammed. So really, the only reason to play at that level is if you're going to go professional or if it's putting you through school. Plus, there's women. How do you fit the women you in? You have a very hard time fitting the men. Uh, so I wasn't going to go professional. And I had scholarship money separate from that. So there was no point in me continuing you know, this fantasy of just playing baseball. So I just, you know, I didn't care about TV. I love sports. I played sports. I had fun. I, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Your average kid who had no clue what he was going to do when he graduated college. You have a very uh, similar trajectory to uh, a very famous man who passed away about five or ten years ago, Danny Gans. Oh, yeah, Danny Gans. He was an incredible baseball player like yourself because you're being humble. And he was playing, and he got to the minors of a professional team, and he was, like, lighting the place up and leading the league and hitting and home runs. And he was a first baseman, and somebody ran down the first baseline and stepped on his Achilles heel. Oh, Michael's Achilles had his tennis. Achilles ripped. And that was it. And he was, for those of you who don't know out there, it's an amazing story. He was completely depressed, and he just was in bed all the time. And his father said, look, we're going out. Come with me. They went to the airport, went to Las Vegas. He said, Dad, what are you doing? Sh shut up. I'll show you what we're doing. Went into a showroom. Lights go down. It's Sammy Davis Jr. He took him to see Sammy Davis Jr. And afterwards he said, Dad, why? Well, I don't understand. Why did you take me here? Because I saw you joke on the baseball field. I saw the way you did the impressions and you did those things and the comedy. I think you can do this. That's a great story. And so for you, it's weird that, you know, all you wanted to do or you were thinking about was baseball and then it doesn't go the way you want it to go. And now you have to find something yeah. else. No, I mean, it, I ended up working in sports television, something I'd never figured 
that I would I would end up doing. I remember I had a job, uh, as a lot of kids do in Detroit, uh, at a summer internship at GM, and a friend of mine's father was the head of the Buick Oldsmobile Cadillac division, called BOC back then, and uh, you know I, I worked there. And actually, uh, the summer I was in accounts payable, uh, you know. I didn't even know what the hell that meant. I was an intern just going through invoices, really not understanding anything I did. And uh, my mom asked me, you know, how was it? Do you like it? I said, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a great, you know, great thing to have on my resume, but I, I don't know if I want to work for a GM or do something like this. I really want to do something in sports. And she said, well, you know, maybe you could be the guy who hands over the big check at the end of a golf tournament. <laughs> so that, that was the only entree I thought I could have in a sport someday. I'd never thought of ending up in sports television. Put my, close my computer. My sister was at ESPN, and uh, this is 1993. It was a bad job market. And she said, uh, why don't you come up and interview for a production assistant job in Bristol? Uh, again, I didn't. I said, that's your thing. That's Neil's thing. I have no interest in doing television. And she said, well, do you have any other options? I said, No. So she said, well, why don't you come up and interview? And just getting an interview is very hard. So, you know. And I should mention that your sister has always been so wonderful to me and is so great, and I, I love working with her, and she's, like, incredibly successful and just an amazing leader. From a very young age, she was like a leader of men and women, which is what you guys are. But sometimes when you meet a young woman in the business, you don't necessarily believe that that can happen. And from the moment I met her, she could do anything. Well, she got me in the door. And the interview process for a job at ESPN, you do an interview with this guy, Al Jaffe, and it was sports trivia. All they cared about is what do you know about sports? They didn't care if you knew anything about television. Like, like, who won the Vesna Trophy last year? You know, they, what I'm is cool. the Vesna? I know Tim Thomas won it three years well, there ago. You go. Well done. So I, I knew nothing. The Vesna about... Trophy is it pronounced that way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, goes to the goaltender with the lowest goals against average, and they have to have a minimum, I believe, of fifty games. They well, play. you could have been hired as a PA at, at ESPN. So I got hired there, and was that your question that they asked you? Well, that, yeah, they asked that. Yeah. They tell asked me another you. question. They asked uh, you who won the women's French Open. Tell me about the Texas Rangers middle relievers. Tell me about the Cleveland Browns running game. I mean, just random questions. Did your sister prepare you for this? No, I would. She just said you didn't know it was going to get asked the Vezina trophy was just the one that everyone knew would always get asked that was one that was kind of a lore but you didn't really know what else so I just happened to be a kid who have who read the sports page every day and was well prepared for it and I got offered a job paying $18,000 a year working six days a week and I didn't have any other options so I went in there and very shortly realized from watching a lot of sports on television my whole life it came you know kind of naturally for me to help to become a producer of sports television. So that was where my launch was. Awesome. And so he's over at ESPN, and what are you doing? So I had already had my first down, up and down already. So, Neil, you had your up and down. What was yeah, it? Yeah, so I uh, I was doing my public access show, <laughs> and, and then in 1989, it wins the College Emmy. And then in 90... Where do you go from there after you win an Emmy in the, as a teenager? I got a reporter job at the NBC affiliate in Detroit. So they, they did a news report on me. And then I moved out to L.A. several months later, half a year later. And I'm in L.A. Like, I'm going to, you know, be somebody. And, you know, I'm 20 years old. I mean, I, I don't know anybody. And uh, 
you don't even understand Los Angeles. Forget, you know, the geography of it, the the political game, the getting to know. Are, are you a real person? Are you just bullshitting me? I mean, all that. And while I'm sitting here watching my little savings dwindle very quickly and not making any inroads anywhere, I get a phone call. I'm literally in the, an empty apartment with a blow up mattress and a telephone, not a cell phone, a telephone and the phone rings. And I'm looking around like. Hello? And it was the the newscast from Detroit where I had had a report done on me, the NBC affiliate. They said, the lady who had been our entertainment reporter, who did the report on you, is no longer with us. And we thought it may be fun to have someone like you as our reporter. Would you like to be a reporter? <laughs> Look uh-huh. around in my empty broom. I was like, okay. And then so I started reporting for the NBC affiliate in Detroit for about a year and it was a freelance gig, but I was doing stories five days a week, and I would interview celebrities when they come into town. And then the Iraq War, literally my first day, which was August, I think, 4th or 5th, something like that, 1990, was the day Saddam Hussein went into uh, Kuwait. And then for the remainder of my time there, I was always battling this war. And then eventually they were like, we're, we're getting rid of all non-essential reporters and not picking up any any contracts and so by 1991 i was back to being unemployed and so um i was just doing some sort of freelance marketing for a nightclub in detroit and trying to really make my plan of what i was going to do and in 94 now a year after michael began his career at espn i moved out to la and started making inroads out here at that point and i was just sort of doing freelance things. Um, and my goal was to make movies. That was it. I was like, I want to be in that the, the long-form storytelling world. I love that. And so I ended up getting a job uh, first uh, producing talk shows. Uh, I was able to get an agent who represented sort of below-the-line producers, and I was working in an incubator that Disney had at KCAL. They were making shows six-week runs, and if they did well, then they put them in syndication. I did that for about a year or so, and then I stumbled onto, by recommendation, uh, a job as the field producer for the OJ trial, the original criminal trial. And while I, it was supposed to be just for a couple of weeks, but the trial became so popular. The field producer for who? What for anthem? ABC News. Wow. And so I was doing, again, just- So to, you were at the courthouse every day. Every day. And so initially it was just the interna- the, the various um, re- reporters that ABC News had around the country would come out, and I would facilitate their live shots through one satellite truck. And then they just decided, all right, we're gonna, because this is so popular, ABC is going to put a reporter there who will be there every day and do reports that the affiliates would pick up. Um, do you know ABC News 1? Do you know that outfit? No. It's, it's an internal like a net- network thing that they would then facilitate all you know, a- anchors. And if you paid a little extra, it could be like, back to you, Brian, you know. And so you're hanging out with all these people from every news entity are there. Yeah. Uh, As a side note, what was the consensus of the group of people and the crews and everything about what was the actual thing that happened? With OJ? Yes. Well, he is— I'm talking about all the people— who were behind the scenes, what was their thought about what really went down? Okay, well, let's just point out, he he was convicted in the civil trial, okay? So he is convicted of the murder. Everybody believed he was guilty. Everybody on the lawn, everybody Everybody. hanging out. There isn't a a single person that I met that really followed the trial, that really followed all of it, that that doesn't think he was guilty. And and after the... the, uh, 
the civil trial happened. That's where he was convicted was the civil trial. After the civil trial was over, I remember watching the uh, jurors for that and their interview, and they were like – they said, well, how did you convict them? And he wasn't convicted on the criminal trial, and they, the response was we looked at the evidence. And if you look at the evidence, it just – blood is blood. You can't change the blood. And I, they talked for like two and a half weeks on the, the DNA, and it was so boring, and I feel like they just the, – the, the jury on that had just sort of zoned out. I, I think they – criminal trial was just sort of a debacle the way they told the story everything needs to be storytelling well it was also the the cops i mean the, you know they mishandled the blood and then you had one cop who was supremely you know racist no and, but the evidence you know, just gave him enough to doubt the evidence was evidence and doubt. the glove like when he put that glove on and they allowed i mean they, they fought for that and they johnny cochran took it and he's like if the glove doesn't fit you must acquit and uh, the, they never talked about how that glove could be dried. It was just—it was so much of a mistake in the way it was done. And the the theory that people that were talking about was how, uh, you know, the, the Marsha Hardens and the people who work for the city—they were lazy and they wanted to have it in their building. So uh, they they just didn't go through a lot of the steps. What's interesting, though, in your job, you weren't allowed to say that. You're, no, as a reporter, you had to be unbiased and, and do it. Whenever I look at anything, I always say to myself, how does something like this happen or a thought process of a, a man who lived in the world, was part of a, a college team, was part of a franchise, a sports team in a locker room, hung with people, was an actor in on film sets everywhere. From what everybody said, and I'm not disputing the fact whether he's guilty or not guilty, from what everybody said who were his teammates and everybody along the way and the movie sets from Naked Gun, there's not one shadow of anything that could indicate. Yeah, do you picture this guy going out on a lawn out in the middle of the moonlight and slitting a woman's throat and a man's throat and killing them and, you know, basically out outside and then just walking off with the blood all over the place and doing something like that. I mean, even in myself, if I were a psychologically deranged person and I was planning a murder, which I've the only one I planned is my own, I think I would do a better job of figuring out how I'm going to kill somebody. Well, you're now you're going with this is crime of passion, I think. I think that's what happened. I, I think that OJ probably in his core is one of those lovable guys. But I, you know, this was a moment. This is one of those moments where some something happens and that's beyond. Yeah, but you don't you don't have a knife like that on you in a moment. You have to think about where you're going to get the fucking knife. You're planning something, aren't you? I mean, you're not just walking out with a hunting knife strapped to your boot. Oh, I found them <laughs> kissing in the thing. Oh, I'm going to kill them now. <laughs> right? That's what that's what always shocked me. I know we got off the subject, but I never understood that. And they always say never apply logic to an illogical situation, and I just did. And I'm sorry. So keep going. So uh, I was doing OJ, and, and but the goal was movies. And so... After OJ ended, I was like, I was going to make a movie. That was what I really wanted to do. And like many people who probably listen to you, I just literally was like, I'm going to do it. And what you said in the beginning, just do it. And I was in that mindset. I'm going to do it. And and for those of you listening, Barry's right. Just do it. Just make it happen. Stop talking about it. Do the best you can do. Just jump in. And so one thing I would add to that, which is what I did in the situation, it's not just about using your money. 
and just about calling in favors. But it's about creating a team of people who are invested in what you're doing. So what I did is I wrote this screenplay, and then I said, all right, well, who would want to make a movie? Well, I went to American Film Institute, and I got a friend of mine who had a friend who had a friend who had a friend, and all these people who had just graduated and had their master's degrees in their various departments. So the cinematographer, he had a stake in making his first movie and would do whatever he could to be the shooter of, of a movie. The uh, costume designer, the production designer, the editor, they all had a stake. So I put each department on them. I'm like, this is your shot. We don't have this huge budget. We have a very small budget. Here's the script. We all believe in it. You must deliver for your department or you're going to fail. Of course I'm going to fail, but you will fail on yours. And so that was sort of the way I approached it with people, and I got people to take an ownership in what it is that they were going to do. And then as a director and a producer, I was shepherding this uh, group of talented individuals who are all excelling in their separate fields. When you're making a production – Unless you're the most talented person in the whole world, you do not know everything that's going on, and you can't do everything. So your goal is to find the key people who will then motivate the people below them. That's what you got to do. So uh, I made this film called Hijacking Hollywood in uh, right after OJ. I remember the film. Remember that now, movie? If I'm not mistaken. Michael came out and worked on the movie. And that was one of the first things I think you sent to me yes. or something like that. That would have been the first thing that you seen. And the movie— was about a, I think it was either a movie studio where there was an intern working and was asked to deliver a print of the movie somewhere and actually decided to hijack the movie. And it was about finding that intern and getting him and the guy the chase ensued. And it had Henry Thomas, who had just, he was from ET, he was Elliot and ET, and he had just come off of Legend of the Fall. Uh, Scott Thompson from The Kids in the Hall. It was great. Of course. Comedic actor. And Mark Metcalf from Animal House and other roles. And what was the budget of that movie? 100 and change. 100,000. And, and was that all your money? Or yeah. You just... yeah, I borrowed it. You know, friends, family. Um, you directed the movie and you produced the movie. Yeah. Did you take a little cameo in the movie? Oh, I was. I had a big part in it. I played Henry's roommate, who is the guy who comes up with the idea of stealing the movie. See, clearly, I don't have that good a memory. No, well, I mean, I was thinner then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I did this small movie, and this was, again, hindsight now, we can all see clearly moments in time. And this was at the very end of Must Shoot 35 millimeter. This is before digital. I mean, the, the, what you could do at this moment in time and what you How could much do. would that movie cost now with your resources? It's a good question. It would be less. It would probably be... Uh, 75 100,000 maybe even close to 100 because we we know we still needed locations and the actors and you know we did it with SAG and all that nonsense but you know with film gone that, that was easily 50 60,000 dollars that you know we would have saved on that cost but i i was sort of on a trajectory to do movies and i did i got hired after hijacking hollywood i did two family films for a guy named Stephen Paul who owns a company called Crystal Sky and they were based off of Mark Twain books and he had output deals in Europe and a few other countries. And it was there was a, a sort of a sweet spot in, in, in entertainment. In the 80s, you could make movies and sell them on VHS, and you would have made a fortune. If you just shot it on film and made something half decent, you were going to get in a video store. In the 90s, it, the VHS market was going down, and the DVD market was happening a little bit, but then it became foreign sales-based. And so I did two foreign sales-based movies. And then by 2000s, cable was starting to boom, and that's when Michael and I partnered. 
Um, so I had done two family films in the late 90s, and then in 2000, we both were working at the Olympics. Now, Michael, I'll let you – we'll jump back to him. He was a very successful sports producer in, in that point. He had left ESPN and now was making his path. And, and when we were at the Olympics together, that was when I first saw the real t- potential for a spark. But you should sort of step back and hear Michael's path. To get I to definitely there. want to see how you moved up so quickly, knowing that there were all these people at the company that were trying to move up quickly. What were you doing that got <laughs> I, you? To- I was at ESPN at a really, really fascinating time. Um, I mean, people like the the company they should read the book that jim miller wrote he he wrote the history of saturday night live and he wrote the history of espn and it's a really really great book uh and it gives you a good perspective of how that company went from just an idea that a father and son had one day in a car to the most powerful media company television network in the history of the planet the the, <laughs> well, the entertainment and sports programming network yes so, oh, right. you know, when I started, ESPN2 had just launched. It was ESPN was the only part of the empire. There was no ESPN.com. Uh, there was, Who owned it back then? Was it Capital Cities? Cap Cities ABC owned it. And uh, shortly after I started, they launched ESPN2, and that was the first project I ever worked on. Uh, Keith Olbermann was a host of a show called Sports Night, and Susie Colber was on it, and Stu, Stu Scott. And So, I mean, I worked six days a week, you know, probably 15, 16 hours a day. Uh, Steve Bornstein was the head of the network and Steve went on to you know do a lot of great things in the business and uh, Scott Ackerson uh, he was one of my coordinating producers uh, there was no Fox Sports at the time there was no Golf Channel Turner Sports barely existed so for example inside the NBA which is produced by a guy named uh, Tim Kiley uh, he was one of my producers and he's made that show probably the greatest studio show in the history of sports television so he was from ESPN. And Scott Ackerson, who left and ran Fox Sportsnet, or Fox Sports, he was from ESPN. There's guys who I was contemporaries with who were production assistants who are now high up at Fox or MLB Network or uh, NFL Network. So it was a really neat time to be there. But I left after probably a year and a half, 20 months, because Bristol's just a difficult place to live if you know you don't want to live there the rest of your life. And it was I call it the Harvard MBA of sports television. I learned a lot there, but I just didn't want to stay there at 21, 22. I wanted to you know, experience life a little more than, than Bristol. So I moved to New York. And back then, you could kind of bounce around project to project uh, in sports television as kind of a feature producer. So I would go work you know, in February. The, the SB Awards were back then in the winter. So I would go work on that for a few months. Then I'd bounce to the NBA playoffs with Turner Sports and TNT, and I'd do that for a month or two. Uh, in the summer, I would work on the X Games, and then I'd go to the U.S. Open for USA. And in the fall, maybe I'd jump on Monday Night Football. And could you explain to the audience what your responsibilities yeah, I mean, were was, as a sports producer? I was a feature producer. I wasn't producing the live games. You know, they would have features on players. So Monday Night Football one year, they moved the pregame show. They had a pregame show on ABC from 8 to 8.20, and uh, they it was the first time they ever did it, and they had a, every week we'd feature a different player. So I would go, you know, be Deion Sanders, would Dallas would be on the next week, so I'd fly to Dallas on Monday, I'd interview Dion, I'd come back, I would turn around a feature. And your interviews were the kind of interviews that they do where they don't show you? They don't show me, yeah. You just see the player talking. So I'd do Dion Sanders. I remember the year we were doing it, Denver was uh, undefeated. They're going into December. And the, the following Monday night, we were scheduled to have Denver versus Miami. 
and everyone was feeling, wow, this the ratings are going to be through the roof because the last Miami was the last undefeated team ever. You know, the Bears went down to Miami in 1985, and they lost on Monday Night Football, and that was a huge game. So, you know, Denver was a juggernaut, and this piece I was going to do was it was going to have a gigantic audience. So, I get on the plane in New York on a Sunday. I'm flying out to Denver. And we land in Denver, and we find out that uh, or while we're on the plane, the pilot announces that Denver lost to the Giants. I mean, I, Kent Graham was like the quarterback of the Giants and lost some last-second Hail Mary pass. It was just – so it was kind of a bummer. I had Terrell Davis, who was going to interview. He backed out of the Shannon Sharp way to get – you know, little things like that we would do. Um, NBA playoffs, I would go work with Craig Sager or Brian Burwell and field produce – Never really live producing games, just kind of really stories with different athletes and features. And then in uh, 1999, I started up, uh, I, I took a job at Major League Baseball Productions. They were starting their own in-house unit a la NFL Films, and they wanted to create content and create shows. Uh, and I loved baseball, and they were also going to teach me how to edit. Now, back then, you know, before when you'd feature produce, you'd sit with an editor and you'd tell them, you know, what shots to pick. And I'd never really... I worked on the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. It's the first time I saw an Avid. And I went to the NBA, NBA Entertainment. You had to learn how to edit all your own stuff. And I, it was like a light switch went on. I said, for those of you who don't know, the Avid was the state of the art editing. It's uh, still the industry standard computer editing system. And you can do it on your own Apple computer. And it's, but I'd never seen anything like it. And then the back then it was a board was, that was the size of a, a small country. Yeah. So I learned how to do this out at the NBA and then MLB. It was like, all right, you're really going to learn how to do it. It just cut out the middleman. It was something that I figured, all right, my big picture plan in my head, Neil's idea was like, oh, I want to make movies when he went to LA. For me, I said, okay, I will buy my own Avid and then I will be able to edit my own shows and projects and I'll make money off renting the Avid back. And I won't have to pay an editor. So I, I saw that kind of as, all right, I can kind of build a little company in that fashion. So I went to Major League Baseball, and I produced, relaunched This Week in Baseball uh, for a season. And we every week we had, you know, Mel Allen had passed away. So we had a different player host the show every week, and it was a blast. You know, one week I'd have Derek Jeter host, and I'd have Barry Bonds, and then Jason Giambi, and then Mike Piazza. I did that for a summer, and then uh, I had also told Major League Baseball that, I would, do, I would do the World Series home videos and direct some commercials, and it was a blast, but there was a ceiling because the guys who were ahead of me were not going to leave those jobs anytime soon, and they really never did. So I knew my, st my stop there would be limited because how much money I could make there would be limited. I just wanted to go there, learn some skills, get better, and move on. So I went to the Olympics in Sydney and was producing the opening teases. So when you would turn on the Olympics and you'd see the first minute and a half, I'd I was doing it for the day session with Hannah Storm, but I also got to know Bob Costas very well. And Bob was launching a show at HBO uh, in the fall uh, called Costas Now. And he asked me if I wanted to come produce the show with him and the executive producer. So I then went to HBO Sports and started as a producer there and uh, produced his first season. And there's obviously when you started, there were tons of people doing what you're doing, but you passed them all. How would you do that? uh opportunity and taking advantage of opportunity i mean look you you have to be you have to be good and i, I was oh, good well, let me, don't discount the grind i mean literally w that he sort of glazes over his time at espn i remember talking with him and it was 15 16 hour days for almost two years and then after that it was taking freelance 
uncertainty gigs, you know, with all kinds of stuff. So U.S. Open tennis, NBA basketball. So he was living in sort of somewhat of this uncertain world, but successful because he was continuously booking things to the next thing because he delivered it every time. So it's a tribute to Michael's skill set. So by the time that Costas said, hey, join my show. Like when Bob Costas calls you. That was seven years after he started ESPN. God. It was a while. Bob Costas doesn't call anybody unless they're the best. Look, I was in a position to work with him directly. So that's number one. Michael, when you get the opportunity, you have to take advantage of it and not fuck it up. There were a lot of people who worked directly with him. I didn't piss him off. I was a baseball fan. I could talk, okay? I could talk St. Louis Cardinals baseball history, which Bob... Yeah, no, Neil does make a point. I mean, I remember there, there was one point I remember I worked something like three months straight without a day off because I went job to job to job because that would lead into a different opportunity. So you, when you're in that, you just have to... You got to work. You got to be at, where you're willing to grind and take it, take advantage of any opportunities that you get. So I was at a... And it, you also have to be willing to say no to certain things, too, because... There was a point where I interviewed for a thing called Sports Century with a guy named Mark Shapiro. And I know Mark Shapiro very well. And it was a big project for ESPN, but it just didn't make sense for me. I didn't want to do it at the time. He doesn't take no lightly. I think he did take it well because I was just straightforward and honest, and we maintained you know, a friendship and relationship. And I always kept in touch with him, not knowing what he would end up being. But I do have a hard and steadfast rule in, for any business – you just treat everyone well with respect because, A, it's the right thing to do. But, B, you know, you never know when that person's going to be your boss or but, when you but, might, might want to do business with that person. But what happens when, as you're treating everyone nice and well and wonderful, you run into people that don't treat you nice and wonderful? How do you handle it? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it, it hasn't happened that much to me, but it, it's you just make a calculated decision about, how you're going to respond and yeah and also note you know. like all right this is who that person is i'm not doing business yeah. with them again you know or if our, i had our do- core we're good people and I, our relationships we've developed over years i think are strong look if you have to do business with someone who's not nice you you deal with it mm-hmm. you know at the end of the day it's like it's what the jesuits taught me at fordham you always have to think about what's the greater good what's the that's how i make a lot of decisions is based on you know what's the greater good and whether it's going to serve me or my family, it's like that's that's how I'm going to react. But getting back to my career, like I was at HBO, and they asked me, they wanted me to produce Inside the NFL after the six months of Costas, and it was actually a show I didn't want to produce on. And I told the the head of HBO, I said, look, it's you know the head of HBO Sports. I don't know if I want to do this, and he was kind of taken aback. He went into a staff meeting and announced to everyone that I was going to do it, and I wasn't too thrilled about that. And I got back to my desk, and there was a message from my sister saying, hey, you know, there was, you remember that show Neil pitched? Neil had pitched a show to Mark Shapiro, who was now coming into power at ESPN. And Neil had pitched a show, uh, a game, traveling sports game show, which we had- Big borrowing deal. Which we had lightly discussed. And Mark had told my sister that he liked the show idea, but he wouldn't be able to just give it to Neil because he really didn't know Neil, and Neil had never run a show before. So we would have to partner Neil up with someone. But if I were to partner with Neil, then he would approve the show because he knew me. And now, mind you, I'd never run a show like that by myself either. And and also at the time, this was a reality game show like Amazing Race. That's what we were trying to essentially pitch. It was before Amazing Race existed. And there was one reality game show on television at the time, a little show called Survivor. So this was way ahead of its time. 
and Mark Shapiro was willing to take the chance and start a whole new type of show that ESPN had never considered doing and you know, certainly was out of their wheelhouse and handed over to two guys who'd never run a show. So I literally said to my sister, well, I need to meet with him tomorrow. I had breakfast with Mark and he sat across from me and said, look, I can't give you a contract now, but you know, I know you want to do things your way. I know you want to try things on your own. And I can tell you that, you know, I believe in the show and I'm going to do every, my, everything in my power to make sure that this happens. Will you come with me? Will you take a chance? And I quit HBO that day without a contract, without anything guaranteed, uh, because I knew it was a unique opportunity. And you took the risk. Oh, took a gigantic you gotta, you risk. You got to hear how this goes. So. so, yeah, so that summer, this was in May of 2001. So yeah. Mark Shapiro was actually indirectly responsible for you guys. Not independently, oh, directly responsible. Directly. Mark was directly a huge influence on our career. So it was, you know, we, we I leave in May of 2000. 2001 and you know we have this loose deal that we're going to get a seven episode order from espn to produce you know a real show no contract no contract but they said you know hey we're gonna work to get it done for me i'd walked away from you walked away from a show that's still on the air today I walked away from the longest running show in sports in, in cable television history and i walked away from what a lot of people call the country club of sports television <laughs> for for nothing for didn't have a contract <laughs> yeah I walked away from a guaranteed excellent executive career arc at HBO. Did you know you could always go back? Oh, I knew I could never go back. I was shown the door. I knew they kicked me out so of the you building. So you were in that, that, that photo of you with the actual the box. banker's box yeah. with a plan <laughs> no, coming I, out of it? No, because I, I had really insulted them because, you know, I'd only been at HBO a couple months and they offered me to run this show. And they really didn't do that. They don't offer, you know, they don't hire people from the outside. They promote from within. So me getting hired, you know, at a you know hundred ten thousand dollars at that time was, you know, very different. And then for him to go out on a limb and tell the whole staff that that I was going to do the show was another step. And then two days later, it's like a slap in the face when I say, okay, you know, I'm actually going to leave. Did you tell him in person? Of course. Yeah. So I went. Have you guys ever? produced one frame of film for hbo no. since then no but i mean i have spoken to rick bernstein and it was respectful but and i think if we had the right project now that we could produce something it's not we're blackball but i knew it was i was shutting a door from certainly an executive standpoint. i was never going to be go back there anytime soon i mean look time heals all wounds if you're cool but it just i knew it was a giant decision i was leaving something guaranteed and a really prestigious place for the unknown now neil did you take your brother aside and say look bro i'm really flattered that you want to do this but uh don't be a fucking idiot. I mean, we can we can find somebody else to do this, or we can set, I mean, don't don't turn no, your back on that. No, because I saw it as a huge opportunity. It, it was a huge opportunity. It became the beginning of great things we've done together. Um, no, he because he had no other choice. <laughs> if I said no, he would have been screwed. <laughs> no, they would they would have paired me with somebody. But I, you know, it was an opportunity, and we were young, and it's like this is it. You know, you make your no, own. No, look, banner. I wasn't married. I didn't have. I would have been a fool not to try it. In, so let's yeah. let's tell you how the, the story has a twist in it. So we're moving forward. We're casting, and yeah, in Mamp July, Brothers in, in it, July we get approved. We, yeah, we so get the full approval in July for eight episodes. Yeah. Yes. So my brother and I are guys that when we feel like something's even before we think it's real, like we, we when we sell a show, we have to make a sizzle reel and a, a PDF deck to show people, and so. We have to invest at the very least our time and energy in creating a sales tool to get a network to say, oh, okay, let's now spend money and make either more sales tools or let's make 
a series. In this case, it was a game show. It was going to go straight to series. But while you're working on getting ready to make it all launch, there's business affairs people over here. There's legal people over here. There's there's people you got to deal with to get the deal done. And just because Mark Shapiro in a meeting says, we're going to do this, doesn't mean it's done. So it still has to go through the normal hoops of business that, that other people deal with. So we're diligently doing that, and we continue to move forward in good faith. We're not being paid by them, but we're doing casting. They're paying for some casting sessions. We did one at an ESPN zone and then a high tops bar in Chicago, and we're finding the talent, and we're moving forward. And then we're going to have a uh, sort of like a pre-show start week where the, we had there were eight people on the show. We brought 16 potential people out. And we were going to go through materials with them and play games and sort of see how they interact and pick the final ones. All right. So we were at the point we were ready to start shooting the show on September 12th, 2001. And then somebody flew some planes into buildings. And it was just complete. It was over. It was done. So we had exposed ourselves with all of this casting. We spent more money, running into more debt. The deal wasn't finally, finally done completely in case of somebody, some terrorist attack, some horrible, horrible thing. Yeah. And so when this happens, if everyone that remembers you know, their lives, you remember the country just froze. We were like, what now? It was so much uncertainty. And you know, where we have this lighthearted TV show with people running around the country and in the show they would literally have nothing but the clothes on their backs and they have to beg borrow and deal their way across the country and talk their way into different places and do these sports tasks and this is now suddenly we are in the post 9-11 world so there's questions as to whether or not the show can even exist for the from from this was September from September until February we were completely unsure if this was going to go forward and to his credit Mark gave Michael some work that kept well, him going. Not quite. And not then quite, come February, the show got greenlit. And once sort of everyone figured out, okay, we're moving forward. Business is still going to happen. Everyone is – we're going to make this all work together as a country and as you know, businesses. And so once the dust settled, they were there and the project got started. But there was major uncertainty for a, a period of time. Yeah. I mean, and I, rightfully so. Nobody knew. Like, I, I can remember, you know, we each had bought an Avid yeah. system, about 30 grand that I really didn't have. I had to take a loan to get it. And, you know, I wake up on 9-11. The view from my apartment was the World Trade Center. You know, I, my w- girlfriend at the time, who's my wife now, called and said, do you see what's going on? I said, no, I had slept in. And she said, open your window planes are flying to buildings were under attack and she's screaming and I open the window and I see World Trade Center. So, you know, in the first second, I was thinking, holy shit. And then second later, I'm thinking, oh, this is not good. <laughs> when you popped your head out of the window, yeah. had there been one plane that Two, hit? Two, it was a second, literally seconds after the second plane had hit, she called. Because everyone thought the first one was an accident. So she didn't call after the, she was watching something. And I actually had a doctor's appointment about two blocks away from there scheduled for later that morning. And uh, the day before, I had been shooting City Scenics. It was a very rainy day. I remember going over to over to Jersey into um, Hoboken and trying to shoot Scenics because we were, you know, we were going to launch a show in New York and it was just super cloudy and super, super rainy. I was like, eh, this is kind of a pain in the ass. And then um, 
yeah, the uh, I wake up and I'm thinking, all right, this is really bad. And um, the show just went away. I remember Neil emailing. Uh, it wasn't Mark, but it was someone else. Well, we can be ready. And the other guy was like, are you crazy? Like, this show is dead. There's nothing. We're not. This show is not happening. You know, this is the worst attack since Pearl Harbor. And so it was like, wow, all right, you know, we've spent some money and we don't have a show. And I called, I remember calling Major League Baseball Productions and saying, hey, do you guys have anything going on that I can work on? I need to work. And they put me on a project. Uh, they were doing a documentary on Cal Ripken. It was part of a documentary for ESPN and actually ended up winning an Emmy for the work on the documentary. And then after that, I went back on the Olympics in Salt Lake and produced there. And then while I was in Salt Lake in February, we got word that, okay, you know, dust is settled. We're moving forward. Let's do the show. And so in May of 2002, we did the show and uh, it went great. You know, we shot it. Uh, and then the show was scheduled to start airing in September. So I moved out here and, you know, under, you know, my mindset was like, well, I'll live here for this project and then we'll see what happens after. And we did the, uh, we edited the show. Uh, we had some small office space. I mean, prior office space was, you know, everything was probably this room, I guess. And I can remember being in a building with, there was no air conditioning. Well, it, no, literally, it was just air conditioning. It had a, it had a, a Western exposure. And it was just, imagine if, if that was the sun just all day. Yeah. And it was crappy windows. Like you have nice windows here. So it would get to be, you know, 90 degrees in the office without any effort. And then you put this old Avid in there that is, uh, it's just smoking <laughs> heat. I mean, it's so hot. So Michael is literally editing by himself in this room that's 115 degrees in, in his underpants. <laughs> it was so hot. And, but, you know, we put the show together. I mean, literally, it's a show that was airing in primetime uh, in New York or, or on ESPN on Tuesday nights at seven o'clock or eight o'clock, whatever it was. And it's like if people knew how the sausage was made, <laughs> you know, it was like the two of us. We had, I think, you know, because we had spent a lot of the money and we really like we brought in one editor who would finish uh, and we had a PA. We had a friend of his who was who didn't have an apartment to live in. So he lived in our office at night and he would take showers. He'd come in the morning. In the sink. Yeah. And this guy's there mean, in his robe and his toothbrush. Yeah. I mean, that's what we lived in. But we were putting a show on ESPN and it did well. And then we went to New York uh, in December to meet with ESPN about a possible season two, which, you know, as Barry knows, hey, if you can get a second, hard enough to get one season, but if you can get a second season, then, hey, you, you've really hit the jackpot. And we met with them and at lunch, they asked uh, the, the guy we met with, a guy named Mike Antonoro. Uh, he said, hey, do you know who Jim Rome is? I said, of course. And he said, well, we're looking to bring him back to the network. Um, he had been on ESPN, too, you know, many years ago, and he was on Fox doing a show called The Last Word. And they, were, they wanted to bring him back to ESPN. And he said, you know, we, we want to bring him back. And we've been meeting with different showrunners, but, you know, we're really not comfortable with anyone. But we think you guys, if, if you wanted it, you guys would be great for it. And for me, it was a big decision because that would mean I'd have to move to L.A. full time. You know, we were talking about doing a second season, actually talking about, well, maybe we'll edit this season out in New York because I didn't, you know, wouldn't have to travel to L.A. But at that point, it was, okay, wait a minute. Now we have two shows. And, you know, Big Bro and Deal was a sports and entertainment show. But Rome was a hardcore sports show, which, you know, I would have to see, oversee heavily. 
and I couldn't do that remotely. So it was it was a no brainer. It was like, yes, we would like it, and yes, we'll do it. Uh, but uh, it just for me, it was a change in life. And like, all right, I'm moving out here, and that's it. How many executive producer, showrunner teams or people did Jim Rome meet with before he decided? You know, I don't know. You... I think they had met with a few. Uh, you know, I, I know it's probably in at least five minimum. So take us to that meeting and tell our audience how the both of you strategize together on how to take the best meeting and come out of there with the gig. Well, uh, you know, Mark had just said, hey, you know, come up with a show you know the name of the show is rome is burning that's all mark told me he said that's that's all i'm telling you give me a show so i mean really just kind jim of, had no concept of what kind of show no, he wanted. no idea no i mean just, that blows me away no just the name is jim the name is rome is burning that's what we were but i mean he had no uh, vision for what he wanted a show with his well i'm sure he and, had a vision but you know mark wanted a producer to walk in and say this is what the show should be this is how it should be done and i think and i think that's the right way i think you the talent is sitting there wants to see what the producer is bringing to the table and in the perfect world the producers bring a lot to the table and the talent can say wow this guy's really good you know i'll do the content then he's gonna frame that content so that's really all we did was try and create devices to let jim be jim and i think that's all you can do with any talent it's all right what are the talent strengths what are their weaknesses let's put him in a framework where his strengths are highlighted. And, you know, if there are weaknesses, we don't really show those weaknesses. So that's what we did. We just kind of came up with, you know, a bunch of different devices and ideas and, you know, went into the meeting at CAA and was there probably about an hour. And, you know, I can remember Jim didn't say a lot, but Mark said, oh, that's great. Or, oh, that's stupid. I like that. No, I don't like this. That's okay. And then, you know, after the meeting, I remember Mark walking out, Mark just kind of pulled us aside and said, good job. And that was it. And then when you got in the car, both of you, did you say to yourselves, we got this gig? No, I mean, I don't know. I did, I don't remember thinking. That. I don't remember thinking that. No. When did you get the call? How did it go down? I don't remember. <laughs> I, I remember the meeting at CAA. I don't remember. I don't remember getting any confirmation call. No. Um, I mean, I remember Beg, Borrow, and Deal, that really distinctly getting a call about, hey, it's actually going to happen, we're moving forward. Yeah. But Rome, it's funny, I really don't remember any definitive moment. I remember all of a sudden it was happening, and it was a one-season, again, guaranteed, weekly show. But that season was longer than the 13 episodes. Yeah, 40, yeah. Week, 40, 40, 40 episodes. Had, so it was 40, 40 episodes, which is a big order. It was a big order, yeah. And Take us through you preparing for your first episode, what went down, who were the first guests, and what normally happens when you're starting a show. The network is meeting with you, and it's like, for those of you who probably don't know the story, I did a show with Jay Moore for uh, ESPN called More Sports. It was the same time. It was right. You guys were launching right around when we were. <laughs> the difference between us and the Mann Brothers and Jim Rome was one group of people knew how to navigate with Mark Shapiro properly, and the other group didn't. I'll let you guess which group that was. We got moved nine times in the first 16 weeks in terms of our time slot, and we had a 50-episode commitment over two years, and we never made it to that. But what happens is when you have a show, without going to detail, is you meet with the network, which was um, Mark Shapiro and Mike Antonoro, and you have an idea of who you want for your first guest because you've been dreaming about this your whole life. And... Unfortunately, sometimes your idea of what you think the best first guest should be 
is not exactly what the network thinks is the best first guess. I remember having a meeting with Jay, Mike Antonoro, and Mark Shapiro. And Shapiro asked Jay, who's your dream vision of your first guest? And Jay, without missing a beat, said, well, from the heart, I would really love to have Hank Aaron because, you know, the trials and tribulations he went through and how difficult it was and how the death threats and how he persevered and he holds the home run record. And before Jay could finish the sentence, Mark Shapiro said, while pointing a finger at him, you will never have Hank Aaron on our show. Hank Aaron does not move the needle. Reggie Jackson maybe moves the needle. Kobe Bryant moves the needle. Shaq moves the needle. Hank Aaron is not what America wants to see. And I'm not going to go into how it uh, deteriorated after that at the table, but because uh, that's another story for another time. But suffice to say that uh, we left that meeting and we realized that we were in deep, deep trouble. And so we were trying to get a great first guest, our first show. But what happens is a network always likes dancing with the stars. If you were to talk with the people who were the first producers of Dancing with the Stars and the first talent coordinator, which I believe they hired, was a guy named Chuck LaBella. And Chuck was, uh, I don't know, let's say mutually they they left terms in the very beginning for the for, for before the first show went because the network came up with their list. We want Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman, we want all these people. <laughs> and then you end up with like the parrot from Beretta. So it's like you, you know, it's it's tough. So who did they want your first guest to be? And they and no, the thing is they don't even help you get the first guest. I'll have Neil kind of lay the ground because Neil really oversaw the studio we were going to do this. Mm. You know, we were figuring out, it's like, all right, now we have the show. ESPN didn't have a studio out here, you know, and they don't do that many deals like this anymore. I mean, we were full turnkey production company. Like PTI, for example, the executive producer is a guy named Eric Rideholm, who's a genius and he's incredible. <laughs> uh, he doesn't run the facility. He does it. Uh, at first, they did a place called Atlantic Video. Now, I think they do it at like an ABC News place in D.C. So it's a headache that he never, you know, would have to deal with. It was like they had a facility infrastructure. Out here in L.A., there really was no infrastructure, which was a headache, but also was a blessing in disguise because it allows you, as a production company, more control of the money to decide we need more money for the budget, and it's up to us how to spend that money and make sure that we have what we need. So we first shot the show at Glendale Studios. We ended up moving the show four times, three different facilities at four different moves, and nobody at home knew. The set was never designed to be moved, but yet it was. It was torn apart, put back together. Initially, the show was not live. It was taped, so Glendale worked. It was very inexpensive. Um, and, you know, as Michael pointed out on the Beg, Bar and Deal front, you know, he was in his underpants at the end. So, you know, this is a new world for us now running these shows and cable budgets are were and are challenging. Um, and you just, you know, it, it, being a producer in your core, you need to learn to save money all the time because you never know when you're going to spend it on something. Just don't know. And beg, borrow and deal for sure. You didn't know because you're running around the country. So we thought, all right, well, let's get the cheapest facilities. So I worked that. That was what my focus was, making sure that the show went off without a hitch from a technical standpoint. And so we worked out of Glendale Studios and then we moved to Tribune in Hollywood. 
and then from Tribune it went from a weekly show to a live show to a daily live show, and uh, that brought new challenges to it. And then finally, this this whole time Jim had been saying from the beginning, he's like, you know, I may be making my dream home in Orange County. You know, it's, I am building. Not it. I may. He said I, I was. I am building it, and it, someday won. it'll be done. Yeah. So flash forward three years or so into our relationship with him, and he's like, it's almost done. What are we gonna do? You know, because I'm gonna do my radio show from down in Orange County, deep Orange County. The the live shot that we're doing right now at 12 noon will not work for my schedule from LA. And so we went looking for a facility in Orange County, and nothing existed that was connected via fiber, uh, which is a way to transmit the feed. Otherwise, you had to go to satellite, and it just it made sense to have a studio like that. And so as we went looking, couldn't find anything. We decided, you know what? We're going to roll the dice on this and get a facility built. So we bought a building that had a warehouse in the back, just a big open room. And then we custom made one of those mobile TV trucks that you'd see at a sporting event, parked it in the back, drilled a hole in the wall and put the cables in there and then put a lighting grid in and boom, you got a TV studio. And our thought was, well, if if all goes away, if the show disappears, we can sell the truck separately and sell the building separately and walk away from it. The hardest thing about that whole thing was getting the fiber line connected. We couldn't get a fiber line connected to the building. And it's it's a lot cheaper if you have this direct connection into the sort of fiber grid because um, they'll just beam it to the, the hub and then it goes right to uh, ESPN. And then from there, they satellite it out to everybody. So the only company that had the exclusive rights to fiber was Verizon. And so I was writing and writing and writing and trying to get a hold of somebody and calling and a guy who sort of heads our operations, who's a real technical genius, he said, you know, three months, that's that's the minimum because they have to get permits pulled. They have to rip up the street. And they got to run. I mean, they're running this cable underneath the ground. And we had hit that three-month mark, and I, still I didn't have anybody who was – forget about answering the phone. Forget about coming out. Like it was nothing. I, I was like, I don't know what we're going to do. And so in a last-ditch effort, this is a suggestion to anybody out there. I um, just started searching on the internet at Verizon and just got a bunch of names and email addresses of various high-level people. And I sent a mass email, copied everybody on it, and I said, you know, here below, my, here's who I am, here's what I'm doing, I'm working on this TV show, I've been calling and trying to get this fiber connection. What you do, I want to give you money to do what you do. And I said, I have not been able to hold anybody. Please see below the list of people who will lose their jobs in 90 days if nobody calls me back. And it was less than 20 minutes until my phone rang and less than a week until they were ripping up the street. And the fiber was done two weeks in advance. Wow. What a great story. Um, so I, as I was focusing on that, Michael was dealing with the I mean, Michael and I were, you know, collaborating on the creative before the show got started before that first meeting but once the show really hit the road he was doing all that heavy so when thing. we had that first show you know like you said it's, it's i remember it very well you know mark uh is a very strong-willed executive and you know he has his vision and idea and usually he's right and uh he had said all right who, who are we gonna have because this is a weekly show it's not a daily show this was more weekly so your guest is really paramount uh or your guests we had booked Terrell Owens to come in studio. And this was, you know, 2003. He was leaving the Niners. You know, I mean, look, you book Terrell Owens anytime in the 2000s. He's a great book. I mean, he's a 
you know, brash. He says anything. He's great little, booking for you. Little great off, booking for Neil. Great booking for Jim Rohn. A little off Not the a great booking for Mark well, Shapiro. You know, Mark liked him, but he didn't think that he, he moved was, the needle. Well, he felt he moved the needle, but not there was someone else who we could get who'd be bigger. And he really wanted, uh, he thought Keyshawn would be bigger. And Keyshawn, again, he's great. And I, normally I wouldn't argue, but Keyshawn was going to be via satellite and Terrell was going to be in studio. And, uh, but look, Mark's the boss. So we did Keyshawn via satellite. And then we taped Terrell and he aired the next week. You know, it wasn't as if Mark said, Terrell doesn't move the needle. He knew Terrell moved the needle, but he really wanted Keyshawn. So and, we got Keyshawn. And when did you guys know that you had a hit on your hands? When we got renewed for a second season and feel good. You know, you see the ratings and you know you're doing okay. And then the second season comes and they want to do that. And you say, all right, great. We got a second season. When they came back to us and said, we want to do. We want to move this to a daily show. That's when I said, "Okay, now we're really onto something." Because and and I know by the way, we want to do a three year deal. So they started doing three year deals as a daily show, and that's when you say, "All right, good, we can breathe a little." And for those of you who don't know, a daily show normally in network television, the minimum you'll ever find for a daily show is forty weeks, and the maximum could be fifty. And for them, it was probably 47 weeks because Jim probably wanted five weeks vacation. Yeah, we, we were like 225 shows a year. So yeah. over a three-year period, these guys are doing close to 700 television shows. Yeah, no, so it was, it was great. And the other guy that they talked about who didn't decide to buy his own building was basically renting other people's building. Yes, he had less stress, but he also was in a situation where he rented off his future these guys invested in their future and what happens when you get a budget for a television show in that budget that they put together is the studio the editing bays the cameramen the avid equipment the executive producer fee the talent fee the office space which if it, it's if it's inside your studio and you have a studio that can house your office space, if possible, your editing bays and all this stuff, and the editors, there's line items for that. So if the budget for a, an editor is, let's say, 5000 a week, they don't have to pay the guy $5,000 a week. They can pay him whatever they want. If the editing bay rental is a certain amount of money, there's a markup for everything. So when you're inside, as we say, the sausage factory and you're in a production company, your goal as a production company, minimum, is to profit 30% on every dollar. And there's always a situation that no one likes to talk about, which is there's overages and there's underages. Overages means you fucked up, your line producer fucked up, you did some things wrong, and your budget is over what they've given you and you're in deep trouble and you got to pay extra money out and you're losing underages is when you run a well-oiled machine and every aspect of the line item you control with an iron fist and you put it together and there are several thousand dollars of extra money in your budget 
it's an unspoken thing, but that you get to keep. Now, granted, the network wants to see an accounting statement. They want to see this and that. But the bottom line is you're allowed to charge what you want to charge. And if the editing bay at 10 different places is charging $4,200 a week minimum, and you're charging that, but you know you're, it's only costing you $2,200, they don't care. They, they've gotten their money's worth. And so they took the risk, they did it, which gave them the opportunity to make much more money than the other guy they talked about who never did that. I just want to point out you can't get 4000 a week for an editing pay. Yeah. <laughs> back then? No, now. Well, I'm now. talking about back, no, back, yeah, talking yeah. About back so, then. So, no, I mean, you know, look, it, it's, you know, we're, if we're we, scrappers is what I would if, if disc- you, describe us as. If we didn't own our own stuff, it would have been hard because... You know, it's still cable budgets. And that's one of the things I, I went back to is I want to know how to edit all my own things because at some point it just cuts out the middleman. You want to be able to do more, shoot your own cameras. And so, yeah, we did make a conscious decision to take less money early on and buy our own systems, buy our own cameras, buy our own buildings. Hopefully in the long run that, that serves us well. Tell our audience one story that would be the highlight chapter of your book that happened within the walls of the Jim Rome show or on the show that was like everybody would say, holy shit. Uh, Boy, I got to be honest. I don't – look, his moment with Jim Everett happened long before we were around, so there's no moment like that. I mean, look, I'll tell you my worst moment in TV happened on that show, and it was a fuck up on my end, and it was bad, and you can go find it on YouTube, but – yeah, you know, it wasn't all my Should fault. Should we really be saying the worst right. moment ever? Yeah, it was. It was bad. Can we identify your worst moment now on Barry Katz? Sure. <laughs> yeah, it was my worst television moment. Okay. No, it was at the Super Bowl in Miami. The I think it was the Bears and the Colts. I don't know the year, but we would go on location and we'd do a remote show, and you know all the graphics and footage and B roll would be run through our facility back in L.A., but Jim would be treated like a remote. You know, he'd just be you know, doing a stand-up on the set in Miami, and I would be in his ear, you know, kind of counting him in and talking to him and, you know, giving him whatever info and just controlling the chaos in the truck. And the problem was we share, we all, every show on ESPN would share the same set. If you watch ESPN at the Super Bowl now, it's the same thing. They would go NFL Live to SportsCenter to, you know, whatever shows they have, it's all in the same set. So back then it was the the rundown. NFL Live was at 4, we were at 4.30, then PTI, and then Around the Horn. But PTI and Around the Horn were a little different animals because they were taped much earlier. So NFL Live to us was really tricky because they were two live shows on the same set back-to-back. And, the, you know, the set was big enough where you could have Jim in his spot and the other guys in another spot. But the real tricky part was the prompter because we only have one prompter. And you go from the, them signing off their show to Jim's on camera for the top of our show. So there's got to be a switch between scripts. That was my biggest concern. So, okay, how is this? Run me through this. How is this working? We tell, okay, this guy will switch over and it'll get to different. It's fine. It'll be about of a five second delay, but it'll happen and it's no, and it'll be there. And we rehearsed it and there was the five seconds, you know. And I told Jim, I said, look, for the first five seconds, all you say at the top of the show is, hi, Jim Rome, you know, here's what I'm burning on. That was how the show always started. Then he would turn and he'd have a long monologue. So I said, look, that thing you're not going to see in the prompter. But then when you turn, it'll be there. 
So he's like, all right, we rehearsed it. And he looked at it, five second delay, turn, and boom, there it came. Did it go? Okay. So then when we go live, he turns and it wasn't there. And the NFL live script was there. And he's live and he's got to read this stuff. And, you know, it's not, it was just bad. Like, did he improvise? He tried, but it's, you know, it was, it's impossible because he's there in his mindset. He's done a three hour radio show earlier in the day. He can barely remember what the heck, you know. Did you know that it wasn't on that moment? I knew, and I was, you know, like we had some sound. And and you I, couldn't fix it while he was I going. I should have, you know, if I could have done it again, I would have said go to black, go to commercial. I would have just literally, and I was like, they were like, oh, we're getting there. I'm like, you're killing him. And he was hung out to dry. And what was that conversation seconds. like after oh, that? <laughs> I mean, exactly. How You know how that conversation is. It's not good. And I just, you know, I fell on the sword and said, look, you know, I'm sorry. It's my fault. You know, again, as a producer – you have to protect your talent at all costs. And if I could do it all again, if I, I would have said, go to black. I would have said, go to fucking black. Get me out of here. Like, I, I don't care what it means for the network, but it would have been it's much worse for him to be hanging out there to dry. And they would have gone to black. You know, after about five seconds, I would say, go to black, get me the commercial, whatever. It was not good. But I think he appreciated. I explained what happened. I said, look, it's my fault. I'll never, here's what happened. And yeah, he was really pissed and, you know, it wasn't good for him, but. You know, no one, you know, people remember him for something else, not that one day. You that's, know? that's true. So I remember from the career. Take me through the, if you will, the story of how you put together the movie and were producers on Million Dollar Arm last year. Well, that actually, yeah, it goes back to actually a day on, on Rome where my job was to know everything and anything that's going on in the world of sports. Good job to have. So I was reading different websites blogs just seeing what's out there and i came across a story about two kids from india who were trying to become professional baseball pitchers trying to learn how to pitch at usc and they were being trained by tom house and i knew who tom house was you know he's this you know really smart pitching coach who'd worked with nolan ryan and also was a pitcher in the major was a pitcher for the rangers and uh, a few other teams and uh you know it just i thought it was a really neat story and fish out of water And my first thought was this could be a docu-series for Comedy Central, maybe, or Spike. You know, it wasn't ESPN because ESPN was getting away from doing those shows. But I literally, it was a 1230 in the afternoon, middle of the week. We're getting ready to go live soon. I can't get to USC today. I called Neil. I said, look, read this story. Here's this link. I said, if I'm reading about this, someone else is in this town. I said, you need to get to USC today and find out what the deal is here. There's something here for us to do. And you can take it from there. So I raced down to USC, expecting to see every producer in town. <laughs> Nobody's there. Uh, there are these Indian kids playing baseball. And uh, I was like, ah, oh, there's the kids. And J.B. Bernstein, who the movie Million Dollar Arm is based off of, who John Hamm plays, was there. And I went up to him and I introduced myself. And I didn't know him. I'd met him before once or twice, but didn't know him. But he knew Michael and he knew my sister Mora. And uh, so he knew the name Mant, and uh, we got to talking. And again, I echoed Michael's thoughts, and I thought, you know, maybe there could be something to following their efforts. And so we we just started shooting B-roll of it and doing some interviews and creating a sizzle reel. We took that reel around to Travel Channel, Comedy Central, a bunch of places that that we could have made a funny show. It could have been very funny. There was a show that was on MTV uh, about this Italian guy who was trying to date girls in America. That's kind of funny. And so, you know, 
that format we had in our heads, I still think back and think it has merit. Um, but nobody at any network saw that. And as we continued to shoot for the, the summer months, the fall came, they got on a plane and they went to this tryout in um, Phoenix and they bombed. I mean, really bombed bad. And after that, they came back to USC and we were still shooting. And then they had a second tryout and then they got signed. And at that point, I was like, this is a movie. This is a movie and it's done. We have it. So we cut together a, essentially an extended trailer, like a 12, 10 minute sizzle reel that, that was, and it literally at points in the, in the tape said, and that is the end of act one. And this part could be played by Alan Arkin. I mean, it was, it was, it laid it out. Like you, you have never seen a movie. You've never read a screenplay. You will understand structure from this 10 minute video. And we, uh, I said to JB, I said, you know, I said, Michael, obviously I said, this is a movie. Michael's like, great. Let's see what we can do with it. And I was talking to JB and I said, well, you I guys never pitched a movie to a movie studio no. before. No, no. And so, um, uh, I said to JB, I said, we can't sell this. I said, our strength, it's, I shouldn't say can't, um, it's unlikely. We need to create partnerships. And, and Michael and I know that, and we're always looking to create partnerships. We're coming to talk to you, Barry, today. We're going to see about maybe creating a partnership on something. You know, one guy makes some money for doing a little less work, but the other guy makes a little more money because he's doing the heavy lifting. And that's how business is done. So as I said, when I said hijacking Hollywood, create the partnerships with the people who are motivated to be a part of it. So uh, I said, we have never sold a studio movie. We would be smart to partner with somebody who has, and in particular, somebody who has specialized in sports movies. We're very well respected in sports television. So why not create that sort of partnership with another producer? And I made a list of five producers or producing teams that have done specialties in sports movies. And at the top of it were two guys, Mark Chardy and Gordon Gray and JB uh, and they had done a million – they did The Rookie and Secretariat and Miracle, a bunch of movies in all sports. And so I said to JB, I said, here's my list. And the first name was Mark Charity, and he said, I know that guy. And I said, let's meet with him. So he set up a meeting, and we went in, and I showed the videotape to him. And he was like, wow, that's – okay, that's interesting. I've never seen that before. Apparently, nobody makes sizzles for movies. It's always the screenplay. And when you're reading a screenplay – you know, there's a lot of interpretation in there. You know, what's the director going to do here? What's the director going to do there? And uh, what if we got this actor and this actor? But when you see it play out and you see the, the real guys and you see the complete story, it somehow made it a little more palatable. And so Mark looked at it and said, can you make this change and this little change? And then we did. And then within a week's time, he was meeting with Joe Roth. Who, for people who don't know who Joe, Joe is a, a, a powerhouse. It's Spielberg level. I mean, run studios. You know, big guy, big big movies. I mean, just also direct movies. Yes, um, the the highest level you can be at in this business. And so Joe saw that tape and said, "Wow, that's great. Let's do it." And they then at the time he had a deal at Sony, and so they they rolled it into his deal, and they hired a writer, who had the project for a year and never wrote a page and gave the money back. He was like, I'm just so sorry I got busy and I'm working on my project. Who does that? So he gives the money back and then they end up uh, going back to Sony and they're, they're like, we're going to get a different writer. And so then they got Tom McCarthy who had just come off of the movie Win Win and the station agent. 
and fantastic writer. And so then they had a new Not script. Not exactly the tone of his writing before that would seem to be for this movie, but he, no. like you guys, he changed his pattern. And yeah. And yeah. then um, they took it to, the, to Disney and um, Mark and uh, jo- Gordon and Joe pushed it over the top at Disney. Um, and uh, then they got on uh, Craig Gillespie. Was a great director and got a really—he's just got a great touch, um, and uh, and then it happened six years after we sold that sizzle reel. So it took a while, even though you had major players at- attached to it, um, and very good sales tools, and still took long. So you go to the premiere, you're sitting there for the first time in front of a an audience of family, friends, and invited guests. And the lights come up. Mm-hmm. What do you feel? Uh, well, let's go back to the red carpet. So I lived in the building. Anyone been to the Chinese theater here? Of course. Right. So if you're standing on Hollywood Boulevard and you're looking at the Chinese theater, look above it. And there's an apartment building directly behind it. It's 12 stories high. The Chinese theater is probably four stories. So you can see the top floor. The top left corner with again terrible windows, southern exposure, so it was 115 degrees all the time. Seems was to be my the running theme about the song. Yeah, and very hot. You were, in, got, you were in your underwear a lot working there. I often wonder, as you look at photograph postcards of the Chinese theater, you see this building behind it. And I wonder if there's a photo of me in my underpants up in the window <laughs> because it was always so hot. Um, but I recall being there, and, I, and prior to living in that apartment, I lived at Hollywood and Fuller right down the street. So um, for eight years of my life. I was within a stone's throw of this red carpet, and I had come to L.A. with the hopes of being in the entertainment business and with the hopes of making movies, and then now I'm on this red carpet. Hollywood Boulevard is shut down, and I'm with my brother, who I've been partners with for over a decade. That was the moment when I was thinking, wow, this is special. This is really great. And then then in the movie when – you saw our names on the screen. That was that was pretty cool. But um, we'd made movies, and our movies had been in the theaters. But it was always like a little thing, and it was a struggle, and it was you know, oh my gosh. And now we're part of this this huge thing that everybody else really did the heavy lifting, and we're able to be a part of it. And so it was just for me, it was an unbelievably special. Michael, how did you feel when the lights came up? Yeah, I mean, for me. It, the first thing that struck me was when I went to a screening and the first things on the screen are based on a true story. And that was the coolest thing. And same thing in the movie, because, you know, again, Neil says it right that, you know, we didn't do the heavy lifting on this, you know, um, but this never happens if we don't do what we did because this story was out there for anyone to take. You know, I had urgency, but no one else came to JB. And when Neil said to JB, hey, this is a movie, he said, that's the dumbest fucking idea I've ever heard. That's actually what he said. No, he said, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah, you're that's a fucking the dumbest idiot. idea I've ever heard. But I mean, you know, to see that based on a true story, and you know what? The only reason, you know, this has gotten to the, not the only reason, but a major reason is because we said this is a movie. So that was a really, really kind of neat feeling. And then, uh, Watching the credits of the movie was cool, and you see your name, but what was really neat is they showed a lot of archival source footage that we shot. JB had shot a bunch of stuff, and then we had shot a lot of stuff. And we knew these kids very well. I mean, I 
you know, we knew them when no one knew the story. I had them over, you know, we took them down Hollywood Boulevard or Santa Monica Boulevard for the Halloween, Halloween parade. And I mean, these kids were from nowhere, India. Okay. Very rural place. I mean, you know, really slumdog millionaire. Seriously, like they haven't seen anything. They'd never seen it in the movie. It's like they're playing with an elevator. They'd never seen an elevator. That's no joke. They'd never seen a water fountain. I mean, super, super poor. And so seeing them, total fish out of water, but they're super nice and genuine. I mean, I had them at my house for the Super Bowl, and it was the Steelers and the Cardinals. And they they didn't know, what is this game? They'd never even heard of the Super Bowl. They didn't know what football was. You know, and but all they cared about was I had grilled chicken wings, and they loved it. They could not have enough wings. That's, they didn't give a shit about what was going on in the game. They just wanted more chicken wings. So you know, for the for these kids who you know are really happy and they had had a little bit of a moment in their son, and you know they having gone back to then seeing where they grew up and really understood the poverty to just know that. You know, we had a, an impact on two kids' lives and their families in a really positive way. I mean, that was neat. Yeah, honestly, like, you know, we've produced a lot of television, and you know, I, I don't really get caught up in, you know, I don't, I try not to define myself by my career or what I do work-wise, and you know, it's it's nice, and I've lived a very lucky and fortunate life, uh, but it is very interesting that people really, really get jazzed when they're like, oh my god, you did a you did million dollar arm, or you. Like, that's the one credit people are really fascinated by. And personally, I'm kind of like, well, yeah, I've actually produced thousands of hours of TV and done a lot of other things. But it's like, no, but you you were on a movie. Mm -hmm. So people are really still captured by the idea of doing a movie. And it's, again, it's nothing I've ever really thought that much of. But it's a nice credit to have. It's, it, it's neat, you know, and it shows variety. And the fact that, you know, we've done a lot of different things is, I mean, that's nice. You just want to. It's it's cool. Awesome. Let's do a little word of association. I'm going to mention a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Anything that moves you. You can take turns, alternate, whatever. Will Ferrell. Incredibly uh, gracious with his acting skills. Uh, I've directed Will, I think, five times, six times now in shorts we did for the ESPYs. He doesn't know me. It's like, here's this guy that now is giving me direction, and I'm Will Ferrell, and I've made big movies, and I know comedy. That's not how he used to work with. And he's like, okay, what are we doing? What's your direction? What's your thought? Well, sure. And just zero attitude. So I would say gracious with his skills. Adam Carolla. Funniest guy I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, just supremely talented. And, yeah, really is, truly is the funniest guy in the room. He's so dope. He's so funny. And he's so, so quick. And, yeah, just I, I loved working with Adam. Cal Ripken. Strongest handshake on the planet, bar none. <laughs> and, a, and a great guy, but hands down, you shake his hand, he will break your hand if you're not ready. Oprah Winfrey. Don't know her personally. I mean, we just dealt with her on the show, but... Very polite, very nice. Very nice, very polite, but, I mean, you, you can't uh, you can't have any more respect for someone who... What I love about her and a lot of talent is when they're self-made, and she's self-made. Jamie Foxx. I haven't worked with Jamie directly. Neil has, though. Jamie has a big entourage. That's what I think of. He has a lot of friends who uh, he he works very well with. It's interesting when you see guys with a posse and they don't tend to support him. Like, you know, you sort of see people with the group. He has guys who, who throw out jokes and who are helpful. Um, and so, yeah, his, his group is a helpful group. Right? The late Junior Seau. 
uh, I, I called him the mayor. Whenever we went anywhere, he was like the mayor of the town. People wanted to be around him. He was just very friendly with strangers in, in his time. Justin Timberlake. He's so talented. Yeah. He's ridiculously talented. Yeah. Talent. Um, yeah. I mean, he's just, everybody knows how talented that guy is. Bruce Willis. Um, Bruce. I thought he was nice. I mean, he, he, yeah, I it was, mean, it was one mega shoot we did star, but, yeah. you know, polite and same thing. You I know, Bruce he, knows who Bruce is. Yeah. You know, it's like he comes in, it's like, I'm going to do the Bruce Willis show. Go for it. All right, done. Camera's rolling. I'm Bruce. Done. Yeah. He does his thing, you know. He's got his looks. He's got his thing down, and he's Bruce. Yeah. Keith Oberman. Uh, whereas Adam is the funniest guy in the room, Keith's the smartest guy in the room. Um, you know, he uh, almost... I don't know what he's like now. I haven't worked with him in a long time, but he was like a tortured genius, but was incredibly nice and easy to work with when you were an underling, as I was as a PA. But I saw him definitely torture his producers and bosses. But to, to those who were at the bottom, he couldn't have been more gracious with his time. Bob Costas. He's the best. I mean, Bob is, uh, I mean, Neil will tell you a story about his his memory and his name and face recognition. But uh, as far as um, just, you know, again, he, he and Keith are in the same, they're in the same world as far as ability to act on the fly, smart, writing quick. I mean, you know, he's just really, he's at a different level as far as, you know, intelligence. Jim Rome. He's right in that world, seriously. I mean, I always say about Jim, he would make a, a brilliant lawyer because, you know, he's a guy who, unlike Keith and, and Bob, you know, Jim is doing a three-hour radio show, you know, 250 days a year for the past 20 years, and he's interviewing three guests a day on that radio show. So just do the math, and that's the number of people he is interviewing. It becomes a really unique skill when you're asking people questions, you're trying to find out about them. And so as his producer, you know, whenever you're producing with a high level talent, and certainly in that volume of shows, you have to protect them, you know, from certain things. He's always trying to find out everything. And again, there's certain things you don't want that talent knowing at that certain time, whether or not it's a guest who didn't want to show, didn't want to do the show for whatever reason, maybe they didn't like him or for whatever reason, you feed him that information and he feeds negatively off that and you know you just don't need to go there but you always have to be very careful about what you would say around him because he'll pick you apart like a lawyer would pick you apart on the stand so jim actually jim made me i feel like a better producer because i listen to people better because of the way he would listen to people during interviews all around like jim made me you know definitely a, a stronger producer just by working with him and he, no one works harder than that guy he's got an incredible work ethic um and he's self-made and but yeah i always say you would make a brilliant lawyer you would not want to be getting cross-examined by him because he remembers everything uh and you know can pick you apart if you don't always has command of the facts got it uh one last one which probably you're going to take as well the late Stuart scott you know Stu is he's exactly who everyone says he he was um you know we've all seen a lot of tributes about him and that's who he was i met him when his career started i mean we started the same week at espn and no one knew who he was 
but he had a you know a unique style and a lot of courage because I remember very well there were executives at ESPN were asking him to tone it down you know um maybe your style's a little too flamboyant you know a lot of code stuff for people who are racist and Stu never you know he wasn't going to change who he was and fortunately there were other executives at ESPN who allowed him uh, to be who he was and it goes back to you know you're developing a show let the talent be who they are and fortunately, at the end of the day, that the louder voices at ESPN let Stu be who he was because he was an incredible talent, and he was a, a, a even better guy. I mean, really was just a ball of energy, um, truly genuine, and, you know, he's he was a great. Awesome. Neil, your biggest disappointment in show business. Oh, my God. Biggest disappointment. I, I, I don't think I have one. <laughs> Honestly, ever anything that happens negatively is just it's always something to learn from. Well, that's what I mean like for the people out there listening, mm. there's always something bad that happened that you make you know lemons into lemonade that you turn into something great. There has to be some kind of disappointment in your career that I, you turn I, into I, something I, you great. Know, there's definitely shows that we haven't gotten that you yeah. sit there and say, "Well, I mean, why yeah, it's not getting made." There's there's frustrations <laughs> with shows like Again, like the car show that we did for Speed with Adam Carolla. I am very proud of that show. I think it was a great show. I've had and Speed went under. They changed the the channel just disappeared while we were there. You know, we had a show on Fuel called Strangers in Danger, which we're trying to sell now. Great, great show. Fuel essentially has gone and become the UFC channel. So, you know, through no fault of our own, certain shows just had, didn't succeed because of the politics involved in the networks, and so. It's disappointing. There's no question when you make something that you know is really good. And has yeah, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer for him. It's just the when you have an idea that you know is good, and for whatever reason, it's just not getting made. That's it. You've experienced it a billion. That happens times every day. Everybody, for me. everybody has it in yeah. this town. I don't have a biggest. I have all yeah. continuous it's just, disappointments. Yeah, it's a mounting problem of disappointment. <laughs> Your proudest moment in show business. I don't, and again, I don't necessarily have a moment, but I, the experience of working with my brother has been great. That, that's the best thing for me. You know, that's one of the best answers I've ever gotten in this entire podcast of all the ones I've done. That, that's great. Last question. What advice do you have for the young artist or somebody who wants to be in this business to get to the point where you guys are, where you've won multiple Emmys and have done all kinds of reality, scripted, talk, major motion pictures. What advice do you have for somebody just starting out or somebody out there who might be in the business and not starting out, but how they can sort of change what they're doing and get to the next level like you guys have? Well, it's, again, like you and I were talking the other day. There's no rules. There aren't. Michael and I were just talking the other day. All right, well, where can we drum up new business? What, what should we be working on? And so, like, I'm just, I am not afraid to call anybody, email anybody. Um, and then you just, you just have to follow up. That's the key thing. So it's just, don't be afraid. The worst thing somebody can say to you is no. The odds of them coming to your house and punching you in the stomach for sending that email are very low. So I would say, don't be afraid to just try. And then when you fail, try again. And when you fail, try again. Um, and I would go back to where we started, which is create those partnerships with people who can make you better because you can't do everything. Nobody can do everything. 
you know, like I, I'm not a great editor. Michael's a better editor. So when we're working on things together, you know, he does that. I can direct in the field. I can I can bring my worth in, in contacting people and selling and pitching. You know, so I believe in you know it's just all about what you do for yourself, Michael. Um, yeah, I mean, I always say you don't get into this for the money <laughs> because you know there's a lot of time where you're not going to get paid a lot. Uh, you're doing this because it's something you like. And if you're good at it, eventually you'll get money. Yeah. That's great. I am so grateful that you guys came here. This is like the Doubleman twins, only in sports. <laughs> How did we do movies. compared to the other people? I'm curious. I mean, come on, man. You're fucking fantastic. What are you talking about? I mean, just to have you guys here, and it was just so special and so incredible, mm -hmm. and I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Well, I thank really you for appreciate having us. it. It's been a pleasure, Barry. Yeah. This has been Industry Standard. I've been Barry Katz. I've been Barry Katz. Are you still Barry Katz? <laughs> I am still Barry Katz, sadly, for a lot of people in my family and friends, yes. And if you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory. I'll scream your name and put you on shoulders walk you to fame you'll get all the money drive that fancy car all the people love you cause you're going for life is for the dreamers they have all to gain it's never quite over till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.